In the year 270 of the Common Era, in the Roman province of Lycia and Pamphylia, in what is today southern Turkey, a child was born. For now, we'll call him Chris. His parents were Epiphanius, a brewer of beer, and his wife, Johanna of Patara. They were a wealthy Greek Christian family. According to tradition, Chris's wealthy parents both died when he was a young man, and he then distributed the family's wealth among the poor. His most famous example of this generosity involved a devout Christian man who had fallen on hard times. He had once been wealthy, but he had lost his fortune due to the plotting and envy of Satan. The man had three daughters, who he then had no dowry to marry them off to a proper family, and thus they would probably have been condemned to a life of slavery or prostitution or both. To save this once wealthy man of the humiliation of accepting charity, over the course of three nights, Chris snuck into the house and left a purse of gold so that the man might have a proper dowry for each one of his daughters. He did this three nights in a row, and on the last night, the father caught Chris in the act. And the man fell to his knees and cried before his benefactor, sobbing and thanking him for his generosity. And Chris made the man promise that he would tell no one of the gifts that he had left for him. Chris's uncle, the Bishop of Myra, recognized his nephew's devotion and talents and ordained him as a priest in the early church. Chris then made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and while he was gone, the man who had succeeded his uncle as bishop had died, and the elders of the archdiocese decided that the next man to walk into the church, they would make him the bishop of Myra. And almost immediately after they had made their decision, Chris walked through the door, entered the church, and was proclaimed the bishop of Myra. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, one of Rome's last pagan emperors, Chris was imprisoned and tortured during the Great Persecution, the last and most severe of the Christian persecutions in the empire. From the time of its first appearance, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire, but localized persecution of followers was the preview of the provincial governors. In some areas of the empire, Christians were allowed to practice their faith as long as they contributed and paid homage to the traditional religions. But in other locales, Christians were harassed, beaten, tortured, and killed. Beginning in the 290s, Emperor Diocletian, a conservative follower of the pantheon of Olympian gods, he issued a proclamation and an edict calling for the support and enforcement of the original precepts of Roman religion. The immortal gods themselves will favor and be at peace with the Roman name if we have seen to it that all subject to our rule entirely leads to a pious, religious, peaceable, and chaste life in every respect. And he was speaking of the old pagan gods. In other words, those practicing Christianity were contributing to the downfall of the empire. But despite Diocletian's attempt at enforcing orthodoxy among the citizens of Rome, 
the Christian religion continued to grow and spread through the empire and through the Roman world. In 305, Diocletian abdicated his office as emperor, and the next year, Constantine the Great was proclaimed emperor of all Rome. Legend has it, upon coming to power, Constantine ended all sanctions and prosecutions of Christians, but, historically speaking, that didn't occur officially until the Edict of Milan in 313, which provided for tolerance and acceptance of Christians in the empire. We don't know for certain when Chris was released from his captivity in Myra, but it is said that he appeared in the dreams of Emperor Constantine, imploring him to protect the followers of Christ. In 325, Constantine called for the Council of Nicaea to determine the official canon of the Christian faith, and Chris, as the Bishop of Myra, attended as a proponent of Trinitarianism, that is, the belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost as equal and one. And he also signed the Nicene Creed, or as some people know it, the Apostles' Creed. Another story of Chris includes the resurrection of three children who had been slaughtered by a butcher whose flesh was to be sold as ham during the famine of Myra in 311. By making the sign of the cross over the barrel of the pickled flesh, the children arose intact and returned to their families. Over the centuries, the Bishop of Myra became venerated as a saint. Attributions include being the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, pawnbrokers, brewers, and mostly the patron saint of children. His reputation evolved among the Christian faithful, but perhaps his most notable and remembered attribute was his legendary habit of secret gift-giving, going back to the gifting of gold and his family's wealth as a young man. You know of Chris, the Bishop of Myra. You just didn't know that you knew him. You see, Chris wasn't really named Chris. He was Nicholas, St. Nicholas of Myra, St. Nick, Sinterklaas, Chris Kringle, and most famously, Santa Claus. This is episode 28. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Although that's already come and gone for my Jewish friends. Happy Kwanzaa. Have a cool Yule, a super Saturnalia. However you celebrate the solstice, we hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. I am Alan Tapman, and welcome to the Bruce Traveler Holiday Special. And this week, I'm presenting to you an edited and redacted version of last year's history podcast, Christmas Show. Santa Claus is coming to town, and he's bringing the beer. It's a look at how St. Nicholas has been used as a pitchman for alcohol over the many, many years. This episode was not only one of our highest rated on the History, the Story of Alcohol podcast, 
Uh, it was also the one that I got the most commentary about last year. And if you're not familiar with the show, I take a look at alcohol and its place in history, and I tell the story in a sometimes irreverent manner, uh, and I've been, I drink while I'm recording it. It's a lot of fun for me, and a lot of people liked it. I will tell you, uh, it does have an explicit language warning, and I do go on rants, but it was a, this was a very well-liked show in that podcast. And if you want to learn something and maybe have a little laugh while doing it, check it out. History, the story of alcohol. Uh, look for the Hillbilly Moonshine Jug icon wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to hear the unredacted, unedited, and unabridged version of that, you can go over to uh, the History Podcast Library. I did edit it a lot, and I took out uh, a lot of the length of it, and I took out a lot of content. So, that's what we've got for you this week. Next week, Tony and I will be back, and we are going to do a review of our top five small breweries that each one of us visited in 2018. And I'll also have an interview with Travis Sherry, the host of the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, a fellow craft beer enthusiast, and he and I will discuss what he looks for in a craft beer when he's traveling across the country and around the world. You won't want to miss next week's program. But now, here it is, from December 21st, exactly one year ago today, on the History Podcast, here comes Santa Claus and he's bringing the beer. I hope you like it, and I'll have a few more words at the other end. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. And I in my kerchief and Mama in her cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, but Santa's outside and he's full of dread. The old elf's been working his ho, ho, ho. off all night. An insider waiting. The same <laughs> blight. Milk and cookies spoiled and stale. Won't someone leave him a righteous stout ale? So... Listen, kids, to your drunk uncle out here. Contrary to what mom and dad told you, Father Christmas did not get that round belly and red nose from sucking down glasses of skim and 2% and eating chocolate chip cookies. Not to destroy your innocent visions of sugar plums and candy canes, if you still have any, but when it comes to treats on a long winter's night, if it's all the same to you, I bet Santa would rather have an ale. Or as they say up north, at the North Pole, ho, ho, <laughs> Sacrilege, you say, the very symbol of childhood innocence, guzzling alcohol. Ah, what's next? The Easter Bunny doing jello shots? Hey, get over it. In fact, from the very beginning, Santa Claus, or the man who he was based upon, and what he then became in the popular culture conscience, 
was a man of drinking. <laughs> I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. Cheers to you. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. Mm. Tonight, I'm drinking another good beer from our friends at Santa Fe Brewing Company. They're Adobe Igloo. And you're like, that is a really weird name, Adobe Igloo. Well, they're from New Mexico. And Adobe in Santa Fe, everything's got to be made out of Adobe or it better look very close to looking like it was made out of adobe. It's one of the things, one of the charming things about that city, Santa Fe, is that they have zoned it so everything looks like what you imagine a southwestern high desert city ought to look like. It's a beautiful place, and I plan to go down there sometime within the next few months and see our friends at Santa Fe Brewing. But Adobe Igloo... I tell you what I like about it. Unlike a lot of winter or Christmas ales that the, the uh, craft brewers are making this time, it's malty, but it's not too sweet. This has a nice finish on it that does, it's not clingy. It's really, really good. But I wouldn't expect anything else from the people at Santa Fe Brewing. They make exceptional beers. If you want to know more about them, check them out at santafebrewing.com. So, Santa Claus, hey! Santa Claus was based on a man named Nicholas of Myra, who in the 300s CE, he was a Greek who lived in Anatolia, and that is what is today Western Turkey. In 325 CE, he was one of the many bishops to answer the request of Roman Emperor Constantine to appear at the First Council of Nicaea. Because of the many miracles attributed to Nicholas of Myra, he was also known as Nicholas of the Wonders. Among all saints, he is still considered to be one of the most magical. Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves. <laughs> what about non-repentant thieves? Who's their saint? Children. Of course, children. Pawnbrokers, prostitutes, students, and, and brewers. Why brewers, you say? Why brewers? Well, it is said, according to legend, there's no, there's no hard evidence to this, but according to legend, it's said that Nicholas's father, who was also a bishop, was a brewer of beer. Now, there's another thing that you need to understand about the brewing of beer at this time. People didn't know how beer worked. They didn't know what yeast was. All they knew was if you mashed up the grain, you let it steep, you made a tea out of it, the malt, and then you put it in this vessel that it would ferment and turn into beer. That's what they knew. Because there was residual yeast in the same vessel. And so, you know, these beers were wild strains of yeast, but, you know, they cultivated them over time. There's a great line in a terrible movie, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. And somebody should have just told Kevin Costner from the beginning of that movie, don't even try to... And a happy new year. ...do an English accent, because you're falling in and out of it all the way. So just stop. 
And, you know, it's, that falls back to my, my thing about King John and uh, Richard the Lionhearted. You know, Sean Connery at the end of that movie, he's Richard the Lionhearted, and he comes and he saves the peasants from the cruel sheriff of Nottingham and who and King John and what that's horseshit. Again, the Robin Hood legend is cheap whiskey. Like the William Wallace legend is terrible cheap whiskey. Thank you, Mel Gibson. I'll never forgive you for that. Anyway, but there's one good line in Robin Hood, The Prince of Thieves, and that's from the character who played Friar Tuck, and I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but he said, any man can grind grain to make bread, but only God can make beer. And that's what people thought back at this time, was that beer was made by God. It was magical. So that fits into the whole thing with Nicholas he is the wonder, the, the worker of wonders and magic. And so that's why he is the patron saint of brewers. Cheers. Thank you, St. Nicholas. Cheers. But not only is he the patron saint of brewers, he is worshipped in many cities and countries all across Europe. Nicholas's reputation evolved among the faithful, as is common with the early Christian saints. But the one thing that stuck was his legendary habit of secretly giving gifts to others. And that eventually morphed into Santa Claus that we know today, a fat, jolly, pipe-smoking old elf. Shortly after Clement Moore wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1823, parts of which I incorporated into the top of the show and I morphed into my own thing, shortly after that, in the 19th century, advertisers began using Santa to sell everything from shoes to cigars to, yes, beer and Whiskey. Now, to get from Nicholas of Myra to Santa Claus of today is a long road, and I could go down that rabbit hole, but chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We'd be there for a week. All right. Like many facets of our, our American melting pot society, we freely borrowed from different cultures their views of Santa Claus. We did. And the image we have today came about in 1931 when an illustrator for the Coca-Cola company came up, whose name was Hayden Sundblom. He came up with the image of Santa that we know now. Look at his look at this image, okay? This is what most of us think if pressed into a picture of Santa Claus in mind. Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, Kris Kringle, Father Christmas before that time, and in other cultures, he, he was completely different. He, he had flowing robes of blue and green and other colors. You'll see a variety of beards. Sometimes he had no beard in the drawings. You'll see different headdresses, like a bishop's miter, and staffs and other symbolic implements and accessories. My point is this. The American version of Santa Claus is our creation. And it has its roots in crass commercialism, which began more 
than a hundred years ago. Today, Santa Claus is used to sell everything from automobiles to razors. What, you know, Norelco always had that one commercial where Santa Claus is riding over a razor over a snowfield. Santa Claus doesn't need a razor. He's got a beard. I never made any f <laughs> sense to me. But then again, I was a weird kid. All right. Anyway, he's, he's used to sell everything. Now, why do I bring this up? What does this have to do with selling beer? Because even before Coca-Cola and Norelco and all of the automobile companies used the jolly old elf to sell soda pop cars and razors, the alcohol industry made Santa their number one holiday pitchman. In 1900, one magazine advertisement proclaimed, Wherever children look for Santa Claus, Schlitz beer is known as the standard. And that opened up the floodgates for everybody else. A few years later, after that, a full-color Life magazine ad portrayed Dewar Scotch and a soused Santa Claus reading kitty letters while sucking on a bottle of whiskey. All through the first two decades of the 20th century, brewers and distillers unabashedly used the image of Santa Claus in their advertising, not only in the United States, but also in Canada and Europe. Budweiser, Molson, Boswells, Guinness, Dewars, Martini, Rossi, Falstaff, Olympia, just to name a few, all used various images of Santa Claus in their holiday marketing. And of course, not surprisingly, the temperance movement, advocates and prohibitionists, they condemned those who would suggest that Santa, who, by the way, I'm pretty sure Santa was a legal adult, if he had been real. They condemned those who suggested that Santa had a taste for intoxicants. Well, you tell me. Of course you drink. You're sitting around in the North Pole. It's cold as f all year long. You're watching these guys. Elves just build sh all the time. And, and you're waiting for one day. For one day a year. Christmas Eve. You're going to load up all those toys that those elves have made. And you're going to deliver them to every child around the world. You drink too. All right. <laughs> it's like, okay, so back to this. In the 1930s, the Women's Christian Temperance Union campaigned the U.S. government to outlaw the use of red-suited images in booze ads. One leader of the WCTU testified before Congress Santa Claus, patron saint of children during the holiday season, was pictured loaded down with beer bottles, drinking cocktails, and serving as a bartender. Oh, the, the tragedy of it all. Shortly after Prohibition ended, advertisers picked up right where they left off in using Santa. And after the popularity of Sunblom's artwork, almost every Santa Claus began to look just exactly 
like the one that Coca-Cola was using. And it wasn't just alcohol that was using the old elf. Tobacco companies were some of the biggest users of Santa's images. But as time went on, alcohol companies began to stop, and they waned back on using Santa in their holiday advertising. But cigarettes continued until 1964, when the federal government passed a ban on advertising cigarettes to children. And even then, some companies kept on doing it, Marlboro, into the late 1960s, until they were threatened with legal action. But initially, it wasn't the federal government that pushed for the ban of Santa from alcohol marketing. It was the states. At, at the height, 30 states enacted laws banning Santa from beer and spirits advertising. And because Madison Avenue advertising campaigns were expensive, brewers and distillers steered away from using Santa's image in holiday marketing so their ads would not be banned in those particular states. Magazines, which during the mid-20th century were the largest platform for widespread advertising campaigns, these magazines, they refused to allow advertisements selling alcohol using Santa Claus's image because they feared that the various states would not allow their magazine to be sold within the border of those states. One of the last times that Santa was used in an advert by a brewer was in 1948, when Anheuser-Busch had a campaign using the image of a large, jolly man who looked a lot like Santa Claus, but he was wearing a white, not red, chef's coat and a chef's hat, sitting at a banquet table full of food with his arms spread wide, inviting you to come and enjoy a Christmas feast festooned with Christmas decor, and enjoy it with a bottle of Budweiser. Now, some states at the time said it was an image of Santa, but Anheuser-Busch argued it was just a portly chef, not Santa Claus at all. The campaign was never banned, but it was the last time that Santa Claus's image was used in a nationwide alcohol advertising campaign. Anheuser-Busch ran into some more trouble in 1987. <laughs> I, I, I remember this. When the state of Ohio, A.B. dressed up the lovable party animal, that bull terrier, Spuds McKenzie, in a Santa Claus outfit and put the image on 12 packs of Bud Light. Now, the Ohio Department of Liquor Control ordered all packaging and point-of-sale advertising taken down. Anheuser-Busch responded with a terse press release saying that they were pulling all Spuds McKenzie Bud Light packaging from the state of Ohio. And the result? Well, guess what happened? There was a rush by Ohioans. Is that how you say it? Ohioans or Ohioans? You say Iowans. Ohio. Who gives a f***? It was a rush by Ohioans to border towns on neighboring states to buy the Spuds McKenzie Bud Light 12-packs. Just, of course, if you tell people they can't do something, they want to do it. Most recently, 
concerning Santa Claus and advertising happened uh, just a little over 10 years ago. Ridgeway Brewing Company of Oxfordshire, England, and Cropton Brewing Company of Yorkshire, I guess it would be Oxfordshire. I don't. I think that's what it would be. Anyway, they found out from their importing partners here in the States, Shelton Brothers Distributing, they found out that their holiday beers were banned in several states because of labeling. And the beers were Bad Elf, Very Bad Elf, Criminally Bad Elf, which was a barley wine, Warm Welcome Nut Brown Ale, more on that one in a minute, that's funny, and Santa's Butt Winter Porter and Rudolph's Revenge. And they were banned on the grounds that the artwork on the label portrayed characters, elves, Santa Claus, a mythical reindeer, and they were aimed at underage drinkers. Undignified and improper was the way Maine state liquor officials described the cartoon of Santa dangling precariously over an open fire on the label, on the label, <laughs> of warm welcome nut brown ale. The Shelton brothers sued in courts in New York, Connecticut, and Maine to be able to sell their beers. New York, the first to ban the beer label that year, was also the first to fold. The State Liquor Authority stated that the label had originally been banned at a staff level, which means the director's not taking any f***ing responsibility for this. It was done by an underling. This is a typical bureaucratic f When it was reviewed by the New York State Liquor Authority General Counsel, the, the beer label passed without issue. Now, Maine took a bit longer, perhaps waiting for the lawsuit to be fully filed, perhaps examining the evidence, or maybe they were just waiting for fallout from New York's reversal. Either way, on December 22nd, just three days before Christmas, 2006, the Maine Bureau of Liquor Enforcement reversed the ruling against Santa's butt, winter porter, and warm welcome nut brown ale. Connecticut soon followed suit. Now today, as far as I can find out, the only restriction on buying these beers is uh, di territory distribution and Ohio. You still can't buy Santa's Butt Winter Porter and Warm Welcome Nut Brown Ale or Bad Elf or any of the Bad Elfs or Reindeer <laughs> beers anywhere in the state of Ohio. Now... As far as the federal government goes, they have guidelines. Brewers are committed to a policy and practice of responsible advertising and marketing. So really, it's kind of a self-monitoring thing. But beer advertising and marketing materials should not depict Santa Claus is one of the clauses. <laughs> Sorry about that. In the book, Alcohol Marketing and Advertising, a Federal Trade Commission report to Congress from 2003. And it's right there under Section 3 and, number, or, and Clause C, Beer Advertising and Marketing Materials 
should not depict Santa Claus. Now, it doesn't say you can't do it. It just says you should not do it. And as Shelton Brothers Distributing found out, if you take them to court over this, you can win. Both of those beers, Santa's Butt Porter, it shows Santa sitting his backside to you. All right. And uh, nut, uh, what is it? What is it called? Uh, Warm Welcome Nut Brown Ale. You can Google those both to see what the label looks like. They both depict Santa Claus on a beer label. So anyway. The drying out of Santa Claus has always been a losing cause thanks to the eternal connection between Christmas and alcohol. Our December holiday that we celebrate today began well before the birth of Jesus Christ with ancient drinking celebrations to mark the winter solstice. To early man, the sun was God, or it was part of God, and the day when it was lowest on the horizon and the night was the longest, the next day the night would be a little shorter and the sun would rise a little higher on the horizon. And it would be the start of a new cycle of life. The harvest was complete. The stores were brought in for the winter. There were cold months ahead. Ale was plentiful, and the festivals began. The Egyptians, Mesopotamians, I need another drink, The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Greeks, the Scandinavians, the Romans, the Celts, they all bowed to the winter solstice. The pagans marked the event with their best food and strongest drink and their greatest feast. During those days leading up to and immediately following the solstice. And it's amazing how widespread the winter solstice celebrations are throughout human societies and culture. Even early Neolithic peoples arranged funerary art, graves, and tombs on lines with the solstice, the setting of the sun, and the rising of the sun at the winter solstice. Shortly after Constantine made everyone in the Roman Empire become a Christian and you were going to become a... This wasn't a suggestion. This was an order. And the penalty for disobeying the emperor... Yeah. So, shortly after that, less than 20 years, in 342 CE, as more and more of Europe was brought into the church's fold, Pope Julius I named the last day of the Roman celebration of Saturnalia which was held on December 25th, as the official date of Christ's birth. They also changed the name from Saturnalia to Christ Mass, or Chi Rho Mass, Christmas. Most historians agree, without much debate, that, that the date was selected so that pagans, who had been forced to bow to this new religion, well, they could keep their favorite annual festival. And if you go by the book of Luke in the New Testament, the shepherds were in their fields minding the flocks 
through the night. Now, why were they there through the night? Because the sheep were lambing. That's the only reason why a shepherd would be out minding the flock in the night. It's because he wanted to make sure that when the sheep were giving birth to their lambs, there was somebody there to keep the jackals or the coyotes or the wolves or whatever the hell they might be running around that would eat your lambs. He wanted to keep them away. And when do sheep give birth to their lambs? In the early spring, late winter at the earliest. So late February and March. So according to the gospel, according to Luke, according to the gospel, according to Luke, Jesus was probably a Pisces, which kind of makes sense um, since he was actually, not only was he two different people, he was actually three. He was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I never got that as a kid. I still don't, but anyway. The pagan winter parties never stopped. By the Middle Ages, Christmas would be celebrated by Trappist monks, raising goblets of their finest, strongest ales. It probably wasn't goblets so much as it was tankards, but anyway. Cheers. And why would anyone fast from alcohol on this high holy day? In the 12th century, no one less than St. Francis of Assisi, that's the, the yeah, St. Francis, he scoffed at the idea of not drinking on Christmas. During the Middle Ages in Norway, farmers were required to buy their jarl, their earl, to brew a special Christmas beer known as Yule. Yule. Under law, under law, the batch had to be made with as much grain as the combined weight of the farmer and his wife, or else they risked expulsion from their property. This is another one of those legends that's probably not true, that somebody during the Victorian time that called themselves a historian made up. I can't find any early, early documentary. But, again, this is uh, the mix of history and mythology, hagography, as we, we know it. The tradition of special drinks for this special day only grew more and more and more. And if you listened to last week's uh, episode, which we did a repeat of last uh, year's Christmas show, uh, I talk about all of the celebratory Christmas drinks, including in the 1600s, when revelers throughout England would march from door to door with cup in hand in search of bowls filled with a spiced ale punch called wassail. Here we come a-wassailing among the leaves of green. Anyway, but the pious Puritans of both uh, England and of uh, the North American colonies, they objected to the pagan traditions of Christmas. And Massachusetts Bay Colony completely outlawed the celebration of Christmas religiously or secularly at all. Now, of course, that didn't last long. By the Revolutionary War, Americans were celebrating the holiday with right strong Christmas ales. And in the 19th century, when Santa Claus evolved as a symbol of Christmas, he was frequently portrayed with a tankard of ale in hand. Milk and cookies, 
<laughs> bah humbug. As Goble Beer Company advertised in 1910, drink deep of the brew that restores one's faith in Santa Claus. So, this year, instead of milk and cookies, Santa needs a pop. Malt, yeast, water, and plenty of the hops. A sour, an IPA, it's hard to choose. A dark stout, there's just too many brews. Take a moment, try to think. This holiday season, what would your Santa drink? And once he's finished his mug of good cheer, listen closely and you will hear. Ho, 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 ho. Thank you, thank you all for another good year. Ho, 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 ho. Maybe I'll take that job at the mall after all, if they let me have a beer. On behalf of myself and Brian and Tim and all of us here at History, including the boss, Merrily. Let me wish you the happiest of holiday seasons. Have a cool Yule, a happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, a super Saturnalia, and a wonderful New Year. History Episode 53 was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman. The Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge. The Marketing Director of History is Tim. I'm not the Bomber McVeigh of Mission Digital Marketing. History is a Wild Irish production recorded at Rivers Edge Studios. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. So that was from last year's History Podcast Christmas show. Hey, thanks for listening to The Brews Traveler, everybody. Please follow us over on Facebook and Instagram at The Brews Traveler Podcast. And even though we gave them the week off, Gaelic Storm provides us with the soundtrack to The Brews Traveler. Maybe by next year, they'll have a Christmas album out, or maybe I can get Pat and Steve to just sing us a couple of Christmas carols for the show. You can always find out what's going on with them over at GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. Christmas Eve, if you're in the mid-Missouri area, that's this coming Monday, please come down to the pub and have some eggnog and say hello. We'll be opening at 3 p.m. The kitchen opens at 4 p.m. We'll have homemade eggnog served at 6 8.30 and 11 o'clock each time supplies lasting. We've got some righteous ales on tap down there as well. So I hope to see you there. But if not, I'll see you right back here on the podcast. Take care of each other. Take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And Merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. I love you. Merry Christmas, everybody. And so long for just a while. So, this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, a new one just begun. So, this is Christmas, I hope you have fun. The near and the dear ones, 
the old and the young. A merry, merry Christmas and a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any tears. So this is Christmas for weak and for strong, for rich and the poor ones. The road is so long. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fights. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fears. War is over if you want it. The war is over now. John Lennon, born Liverpool, England, October 9th, 1940, died New York City, December 8th, 1980.